you guys, some of you guys, maybe you're wondering, looking around, where's Pastor Rob? Is he here? Is he safe? Is he okay? He's uh, not here right now, and I think you should take a look at where he is. Hello, everybody. I am not in church, as you can tell. I'm in the Caribbean. And I'm hanging out with Michelle. We're having a lovely time with some friends. Be back next Sunday, but, oh jeepers, I'm out of breath. But I'll tell you what, today you got Sam Musgrave. He's a wonderful pastor from the San Joaquin Valley. Had the privilege to meet him through Charlie Kirk. He and his congregation are brave, just like all of you, God speak. I love this man. He's got one doctorate and he's working on a second one. Great theologian, going to University of Edinburgh. He's learning how to be a Scotsman. And that's great right there. So give him the love of the Godspeak congregation and I'll see you guys next Sunday. You've got the best pastor. Well, good morning to you and greetings from Trinity Community Church, your brothers and sisters, your family up there in Clovis, California, they greet you. Um, Time would fail me to salute your shepherd, Rob, our brother, Charlie, the other patriot pastors that are out there being brave, as Rob said, for the church. Yeah. And their labor of love is of historical significance, but on this special weekend, we get to uh, commemorate those that have uh, given the ultimate cost, the ultimate price for our freedom. And we are so very grateful to the, the men and women who have served, who have given their lives for this nation. Our blood is the seed of our liberty. And now we have the privilege of hearing the word of him who gave his blood to give us eternal liberty. Isn't that amazing? Pastor Rob asked me to preach on John 17, and so I couldn't stop. I had to preach the entire chapter of it, and that's what we're going to be doing today. Um, Before we do that, why don't we begin in prayer? as Jesus himself prayed in this chapter of scripture. Father, we approach your throne of grace and mercy in time of need, and we know that he who sits at your right hand is sympathetic and able to deal gently with sinners and sufferers in our weakness. Father, we ask that as we hear him pray in your word, now immortalized, that you would Oh, Father, just speak to us by your Holy Spirit and glorify the Son you love. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Charles Spurgeon, as you're turning to John 17, Charles Spurgeon said, Some, brethren, pray by the yard, but true prayer is measured by weight and not by length. 
This prayer of Jesus, commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer, is only about 650 words long. It takes just a couple minutes to read. Yet the depth of this prayer that Jesus prays for himself, for his disciples, and for us is deep enough for us to spend eternity to fully understand it. Now let's begin with the context of it in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. Now, pause there. We need to do a little bit of context for ourselves. Who is Jesus? That'd be a good place to start. Who is Jesus? We can never get old of hearing who he is. So let's turn really quickly to chapter 1 of John's gospel. We'll stay in chapter 17, but we're going to flip over to chapter 1 and see how this gospel begins. In the beginning. Well, that's how the whole Bible begins in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, right? Well, John does something rather strange. He says, in the beginning was the Word. So the Word is there, and God is there. And the Word was with God. So they're together and the word was God. Now, now, how can that possibly be? He was, in the beginning, with God. So, so did God clone himself? What, what's happening here? All things were made through the word, and without him was not anything made that was made. So if it was made, he made it. Was he a made thing? No. He's either created or he's uncreated God. He's clearly not created, so he's uncreated God, this word. Verse 14 of chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if there's one thing we know in the Bible, it's Isaiah 42, which says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. And yet, we've seen the word's glory. Who is the word? He's Yahweh, somehow. Yahweh the Son, with equal glory to the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this harkens back to Exodus 34, Moses begs God, show me your glory, and Exodus 34 verses 5 and 6 say, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and a bounding or full of steadfast love or grace and faithfulness or truth. What's John saying? Jesus, his glory is full of grace and truth or abounding with steadfast love and faith. He's Yahweh. He's Exodus 34. That's what we're dealing with here. He's the God of the Old Testament. So we find that God is one infinite being, three co-eternal persons. 
Neither do we have three gods, nor three parts of God. The Holy Trinity is three in one, tri-unity, or Trinity. God the Holy Father, the Holy Son, the Holy Spirit. And it is God the Son, it's not God the Father, nor God the Spirit, who became a man. And so Jesus is Yahshua. He is Yahweh saves. He's Yahweh. That is John's obsession in this gospel. You could trace it in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Jesus says, I do everything my father does. I do everything God does. That has to make him God. People recognize this. Chapter 5, verse 18, this is why the Jews, which or the leaders of the unbelieving Jews at the time, were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath in their mind, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And at that point, Jesus corrected them and said, no, 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 you're misunderstanding me. I'm not saying that I'm equal with God. Wrong. He did not correct them. He let them keep believing that, and he antes up. He says, you should marvel. I have power to raise the dead and to judge everyone. Chapter 5, verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. How are you to honor the Father? Oh, that's right, as God. How are you therefore to honor the Son? Ah, I see, as God. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus expressly says, if you do not worship Jesus, you do not worship God. Why? Because Jesus is God. Now, what did he say when he was walking on the water? His disciples were freaking out. He says, I am. Do not fear. What does he say to the lost? Chapter 8, verse 24. Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. What does he say to his attackers? In chapter 8, verse 58. Truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. He's he's God. And when Jesus, verse 1 of chapter 17, had spoken these words, which words? You guys are going to get really annoyed with me. We're going to flip back, chapter 14, 16. I promise you, I will preach John 17 sooner or later. Uh, 14 to 16, we're going to get a flyover. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Philip requests, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus responds, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Translation, the Father's Yahweh, just like I'm Yahweh. If the Father had come in flesh instead of me, you'd be seeing me. You would act no different. Jesus says, believe in me. That's blasphemy. If he's not God. Chapter 14, verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's blasphemy if Jesus is not God. Chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey me. Blasphemy if he's not God. Chapter 14, verse 16. 
He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now remember, it's the Holy Father, the Holy Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Chapter 14, verse 26, the helper, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't come bringing his own message. He comes and he teaches us what Jesus already said. Chapter 15, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, you are really good theologians, and you're putting together how astonishing that is right there. He said, as God has loved me, God, so I, God, have loved you. That's mind-bending. It's crazy. Abide in my love, Jesus says. Remain in my love. Live in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You lack joy. Have you lacked joy this week? Have you, are you lacking joy this morning? You know the one remedy to that. Live in his love. Live in the love of Christ. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. There's not a lot of that happening out there. A lot of hate going on out there in the world. Jesus tells us a little something about that in chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's comforting, isn't it? (laughs) If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why does the world hate us? Because Jesus chose us in love. There's kind of this subconscious jealousy, I suppose. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, They will also persecute you. Chapter 16, verse 1. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Why are they so angry? Why is the world so angry? Chapter 16, verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Do you know that it's not a sign of new birth if you feel conviction of sin. Everyone on the planet feels conviction of sin to some degree. New birth repents from sin. Romans 1.32 says, though they, speaking of the entire world, know God's righteous decree that those who practice sinful things deserve to die. The whole world, I, Sam Musgrave, knew before Christ saved me, I deserve to die deep down. And I pushed it down. And that's what the world's doing. They not only do those things, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. They have parades celebrating. So every soul on the planet knows that it deserves to die, and it fights. Fights that. So should we be afraid Christians, sounds like an intimidating world in which to live. 
No, we shouldn't be afraid, should we? Chapter 16, verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have conquered the world. That's a good word. And that's what brings us to chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words. You see why I had to do that? These words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He didn't close his eyes and bow. He lifted wide his eyes upward and looks to his father in heaven. Why? Because prayer is not imaginary. Prayer is not Eastern mysticism. It's not new age. Prayer is real. It's relational. It's even political. We are beseeching the throne of heaven. We're beseeching him who sits on the throne. We're beseeching the king. And so here is the king of earth right here consulting the king of heaven. He lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, now, really quickly, Bible trivia. What percentage of the prayers prayed by Christ Jesus get yes in response? A hundred percent, right? We're dealing with every last one. And so we need John 17. We need John 17 because what he prayed then is what he continues to pray. Romans 8.34 says that King Jesus is at the right hand of God. He indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 says he always lives to make intercession for us. He's got his father's ear and his eye is stayed on you. It's an amazing reality. And don't you wish that you could hear him praying for you? I imagine that every Christian who thinks about this wishes they could hear him praying right now. The real man, you know that he's still in a body. He's got height, beard length, eye color, heart rate. He ascended, they watched him go. He's gonna come back in the same way that he left. And he's praying for you right now. It's a wild thought. Robert Murray McShane, a fellow Scotsman, said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And what does he pray? Five things. We'll spend a lot of time on the first three. The last two are rather quick. First, hear Jesus pray that the Trinity gets glory by giving us eternal life. In verses one to five. And how much glory do you hear in these verses? I'm going to read them consecutively. And you hear how much glory goes on here. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
Why does the Trinity do everything that it does? For God's glory. Now, some of us might go around saying, well, to God be the glory and things like that. But how? How does God glorify himself? And Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. He doesn't ask, Father, is the hour coming? He states his fact, the hour is here. Why? Because Jesus is God in flesh, and he has ensured that this week on Passover, he will die for the sins of his people. He's pushed them. He's provoked them. He's ensured it. So the nation's most intelligent, most religious elite have commissioned one-tenth of a Roman legion, which is 600 soldiers, a SWAT team of temple police assist this Roman army. And so we've got Israel's best law enforcement. We've got a small Roman army coming to arrest Jesus. It wasn't a couple of dudes. This was a huge deal. They feared uprising. That's why they did it in the middle of the night with such a large battalion. And Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. The darkest hour. The hour of all hours. Acts 2, Peter preaches to non-believing Jews in Jerusalem. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 4, just two chapters later, the whole church gets together and they pray, Sovereign Lord, they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so the early church worshiped a God who was sovereign over even the most heinous sin in human history. And by that sin, the crucifixion of Christ, brought about his great glory in saving sinners. This is astounding, this God, who is so untamed, so unlike anything that has been imagined or invented by men in their religions. Jesus says, Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Why does Jesus want glory? To glorify the father. How? He says, you've given him, speaking of himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. It's amazing. The Trinity goes for glory by giving their life, eternal life, the life of God into the soul of man. How does this gospel begin? John 1 says, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And John explains, without missing a beat, they, children of God, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God birthed them spiritually from above. This is the subject for John 3. Jesus tells the rabbi Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The great awakening preacher, George Whitfield, 
would incessantly cry in his sermons, you must be born again. So finally, one lady came up and politely asked him, sir, why is it that you keep saying you must be born again? And George Whitfield replied, because you must be born again. (laughs) It's that simple. Verse three, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life isn't primarily heaven, although we do look forward to heaven coming to earth, a new earth and a new universe in which righteousness dwells with new glorified bodies. That's our eternal fate. But eternal life isn't heaven. Eternal life is all that God is in Christ. Eternal life is Christ. You don't get eternal life as if it's some little parcel that God hands out, like here's a little bit of eternal life for you, a little bit of eternal life for you. Eternal life is God in Christ, in the soul of the saved man, woman, or child. Think about this. What did Paul write to the Philippians? He said, my desire is to depart and to be in heaven, right? Wrong. He said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, What did Jesus tell the thief on the cross? Today, you will be with me. In paradise, yes, but with me. That's the big deal. What we win souls with is what we win souls to. And so if what we're marketing out there is just a Christianized version of things that are in the world, You've not won them to Christ. But if what we are winning souls to is Christ, then they are one to Christ. Are we winning souls to Christ? Because eternal life is God in Christ in the soul of man. Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us how many things? All things. It's chump change. He gave us the creator in flesh. He could keep making stuff for eternity. All things are easy. Throw them in. He's given us everything in Christ. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect ones? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This dominates Jesus' mind as he prays in verses four to five. He says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Uh, What preoccupies the mind and the heart of Christ? Glory. His beginningless glory as God with the Father in eternity past. Now, (laughs) Imagine being his disciples, sitting there listening to him pray. If you're his disciples, don't you feel a bit forgotten? His mind is going above and beyond, elsewhere. 
He's leaving. We're staying here. Watch this. How did the upper room event, that last supper, begin back in chapter 13? Look with me. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew, this is fascinating, we are given information It seems that Jesus maybe told the disciples after the resurrection what he was thinking about during this time because we're being told what he's thinking about in the upper room. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. He's going back to glory. Glory resumed. What's on his mind? Fame, fortune. He's going to finally be treated as who he is, God, the king. And how did what was in his mind move his heart? Keep reading. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the extreme, to the uttermost. How did thoughts of his own glory touch his heart towards his people? Verse 3 knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. What's he meditating upon? Glory. His glory. And what does a glorious reentry into heaven, standing ovation, erupting roars from all of heaven's creatures, that God the Son, the King is back. He's home. What does that provoke him to do? That's what he's thinking about. What does it do? He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. (laughs) As his, as his mind goes higher into heaven, his heart races low and out in love towards his men. How much more does his heart race out to us in love now that he is in heaven, immortal, glorified? He raced up to intercede for us and to advocate for us. There wasn't a second of relishing in the glory before he got to the right hand of the Father and he said, we gotta start praying for them. I'm gonna start praying for them. Secondly, hear Jesus pray, the Trinity, keep us in the name of God. Now glance with me quickly at verses six and verses 11 to 12. You see the the, the section here very clearly when we do that. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Verses 11 and 12. Holy Father, keep them in your name. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. So his prayer informs us how God loves us. The Father and the Son keep us in their name. Now what's God's name? We've talked about this already. Yahweh, it's said thousands of times in scripture, we'll say it here, and Jesus says, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. 
The Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, and how do they keep us in their name? Verse six, Jesus says, I have manifested your name. Not, I have taught them your name, or I've taught them about your name. I've manifested your name. I have manifested Yahweh. You remember Exodus 34, what Yahweh did when Moses said, show me your glory. He descended in the cloud. He stood with Moses. He proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, merciful and gracious, abounding in love, slow to anger. Moses just heard Yahweh preach as he passed into the distance. Jesus says, I am Yahweh manifested face to face. God keeps us in his name by showing us that Jesus is in fact Yahweh. By showing Jesus is Yahweh, quote, to the people, Jesus prays, whom you gave me out of the world. Being kept means being gifted by the Father to the Son. We are a gift within the Trinity. It's just wild. You can't make this stuff up. Think about this. Jesus says, yours they were. This is the imperfect tense. This means yours they always were, but you gave them. That's aorist tense. That means at one point in time, you gave them to me. Now, let's pause for a second here. How long has God existed? Didn't have a beginning. He's always existed. Has God ever learned anything? Has God ever had an idea and said, ah, that would be a good idea? He's omniscient. He's always been all-knowing. So really, follow the, the logic of what scripture's saying and apply it to how God loves you. If you're in Christ this morning, God didn't begin to love you. As long as God has existed, God has loved you. The thought of you and God's love for you never started. And if it's beginningless, guess what? It's endless. It's unconditional. His love for you pre-exists the world. Jesus says, yours they were for eternity, and you gave them to me in time. Now, how do we live who are kept in God's name? Verse 6, they've kept your word. God in his love keeps us keeping his word. I believe his word because God's keeping me. Believing. Verse 7, now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Well, so far, what has the Father given the Son in John 17? Us. And so, what should we know? That Jesus got us from his Father. And how exactly should we know that? Verse 8, because I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So 
Who sent Jesus? The Father. So what? So, Jesus came to live and to die because the Father himself loves us. Okay, that totally contradicts the lie out of the pit of hell that Jesus was the nice person of God and the Father was the big meanie and Jesus came to die because the Father was really angry. That's blasphemous. The whole divine child abuse view of the cross is utter heresy. Each member of the Trinity is devoted to their plan of salvation because each one of them loves us. Watch this. John 3.16. For God hated the world so much that he gave his only son. Come on. He loved the world. He so loved the world. Chapter 16, verse 27. Jesus says to his disciples right before he dies, listen, I want you to get this. The Father himself loves you. 1 John 4. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse nine. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Wow. Jesus really said that? He said it in my translation. You should check yours. He said it. To be kept in God's name is to be particularly loved. Is to have God's special saving love. Jesus expressly does not pray for the world. There's one thing, there's one group of souls for whom Jesus prays. And who is it? Those you have given me, for they are yours. Now, when did you last think in your time with the Lord? You pray for us only. We've got the king's undivided attention in prayer. It's so sad that so many Christians refrain from praying because they think, you know what, he's got better things to do. He goes, you're the only one I'm really paying attention to. The world and the world events, that's easy. Like, come on. I keep it existing. This is simple. Why do we worry when he, control, he who controls the world loves us like this? Why do we have anxiety at all? He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. He's glorified in us because we trust him. We don't panic like the world does because he's praying for us. We don't fear because he who rules the world loved us to death and loves us to eternity. And he prays for us. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Listen to his concern. It's sweet. You, not the world, That's his concern. The world is easy peasy. You have the heart of Christ devoted to you. His full focus. Verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
So what, what is Jesus aiming at? Why is he praying all that he's prayed so far? What's the intended result? Oneness. That you and I, dear brother and sister, that you and I would be one. That we would crave oneness. And we do, don't we? We're hungry for oneness. Why? Because we have the eternal life of the three-person God indwelling us. Now, world religions are filled with single-person gods. The imaginary gods of men who were lonely and needy before their creation. So, they needed to make men because they wanted friends or slaves. Sadly, a lot of Christians say the same things to their kids, and it's totally wrong. God was not lonely. God did not create because he needed fellowship. God is fellowship in the Trinity. The three-person God is love. He didn't learn to love. He didn't begin to love like single-person gods do, single-person fake gods do. The Trinity was happy. The Trinity was a super abundance of love within the triune community. So God created to share a surplus love of the Trinity. The Holy Father, the Holy Son, the Holy Spirit. They didn't create to get fellowship. They created as an overflow of infinite fellowship. That'll turn your whole world on its head. Don't teach a lonely, needy, single-person deity. It's not the God of the Bible. In fact, Satan is a better example of a typical, lonely, needy, single-person fake God. That's why he invents things like communism and conformity and critical race theory. Because single-person fake gods want slaves of sameness. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Why was Judas lost? Because the scripture said he would be, period. Now, what does that mean? It means the father didn't give him to the son. Bottom line. Christ keeps, Christ guards every soul the father gives him. He's already said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so come now to him. If you have remained outside of Christ for whatever reason until now, come to him and learn that you have been given by the Father in love to him before the world began. Come to him now, and he will never, ever, ever get rid of you. He's the truth teller. He never tells a lie. He will never get rid of you. Watch how Jesus transitions here. He says, I was with them, but now. Thirdly, hear Jesus pray the Trinity sanctify us in the world. I know, it's kind of the gloomy part about this prayer. Wish that he just prayed us out of it, but he didn't. Verses 13 to 19, he says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And so I want you to think about this. Why doesn't he wait to share these things until a couple days later after his resurrection? 
because they're gonna be absolutely inebriated with joy that he's resurrected. They're gonna be on emotional high. And what he has to say right here will not be so significant to them as they're at the peak of cheer after his resurrection. Jesus is playing the long game. He knows that their lives are gonna be really, really, really hard. Most of them are gonna die really horrible deaths for Christ. And so they're going to say here in a few years things like, you remember when Jesus told us about his joy just before he was arrested and beaten and defamed and murdered? Yeah, we, we can hang on a little longer. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Isn't this a timely word? Don't we need to hear this right now? Our king continues to pray this for us. Condemned as a galley slave on a French ship, John Knox sailed past St. Andrews, Scotland, and said, I see the steeple of the place where God first in public opened my mouth to glory, and I am fully persuaded I shall not depart this life till my tongue shall glorify his godly name in the same place. Give me Scotland or I die. He's released 19 months later. He studies with and under John Calvin. He returns to Scotland under the violent reign of Bloody Mary, Queen of Scots, who's just burned over 300 Protestant reformers at the stake and comes to admit, and I quote, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Knox led Scotland to establish the Presbyterian Church and dying on November 24th, 1572, he said, a man with God is always in the majority. Lord, grant true pastors to thy kirk, thy church. Kevin Swanson comments on this, such was the last prayer of the great man without whom there would not have been any America. No Puritans, no pilgrims, no Patrick Henry, no Samuel Adams, no George Washington. Yet his agenda was far from political. All he wanted were more pastors. This is our agenda. Lord, grant True pastors to thy church. And you had better praise God that you have a true pastor in this church. The nation is at its best when the church is at her best. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. It was well within his power to remove us from the world. He wants us in the world. And we are invincible until he decides he no longer wants us in the world. Why do we worry so much? Why do we fear so much? Jesus is the one who created this being that we now call the evil one. The devil is on his leash. Martin Luther, who was literally a man against the world, said the devil is God's devil. Your king bled and died for you. And he's the one who prays Satan off of you. Why do we run in fear? Why do we kowtow? Be brave 
and live life for the almighty lover of your soul. Verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The king always gets what the king prays, and he prays that you and I be holy. Our father is working everything in creation, Romans 8, in order to conform us to the image of his beloved son. The saddest person on the planet, therefore, is not a soul outside Christ, but a soul who's saved by Christ and is living in sin. That's the most miserable person on the planet. And you know it. I've known it at various times in my life. How can we be glad in sins Christ died to erase? Turn to him. He's, he's opening wide his arms. His heart is, is gentle and lowly. If you haven't read that book, by the way, extraordinary book by Dane Ortland that just came out this past year. It's like top seller, gentle and lowly. Highly recommend it. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Hebrews 12, 2 says, look to Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He looked down on them as they mocked him, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are commanded to look at him now where he is. Yes, he's scarred. He bears the scars of Calvary, but he is alive forevermore, and he will never die again, and he will come to get us. Look at him there, enthroned with immortal scars, gaze with him, and the promise of God's word is that you will become holy in reality as you look at him. Fourthly, these last two are short. Hear Jesus pray the Trinity make us one together in God. Verses 20 to 24. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, this isn't an anonymous group in his mind. He's not saying, hey, I'm praying for my disciples here, and whoever might come to believe through them. No, he's praying specifically, particularly, personally, individually for you and I who would come to believe in him. Verse 21 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And church, unity cannot be our aim. If unity becomes what we pursue, we will all compromise to achieve it. But if Christ is our aim, then unity will come as a sudden byproduct. It'll happen to the extent we look to him. And pledge allegiance to him. The triunity of his love unites us as we pledge allegiance to the king. Verses 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. There is one institution in the universe that has been given the glory of God. And where the glory of God pervades, the doors simply cannot shut. Churches that are not meeting together need to either repent or write Ichabod across the front of their building.
How else will the world know that Christ the King is Savior and that God has loved us even as he loved him? How else will a dying world see perfect oneness as you and I experience? I didn't know any of you before today. And so many of you, we've enjoyed fellowship together. We're family. Stay faithful. God speak, Calvary Church. And listen, as Jesus says, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Astonishing. 17th century Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote, it's as if he says, speaking of Jesus here, the truth is, I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet until I have you where I am that we may never part again. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my father's company, if I have not you with me. My heart is so set upon you, and if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. It's outrageous love. Don't you love him? The most God-like thing we can do is to love Christ the way God the Father loves Christ. The most Christ-like thing we could do is love God the Father the way Christ loves God the Father. This and this alone will make us one in the Holy Spirit, male, female, black, white, yellow, red, brown, whatever. This alone is gonna unite us. Lastly, hear Jesus pray the Trinity love us by knowledge, by knowledge. Let this ring in your ears as we go. Verses 25 to 26, O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Church, we cannot love what we do not know. And you cannot love well what you do not know well. Study him. Study and know Christ. Make that, above all, your pursuit. He will often shatter what we think and what we feel he's like. Let him shatter. Because he is vastly better than all that we can ask or imagine. Let's pray. Father, we pray with your son that you would be glorified in us, your church. We ask, Father, that your love would be in us, that Christ himself, who is your love, would be in us, and that we would enjoy more and more, beginning right now, eternal life, which is to know you and to know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Give us Christ, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.